This is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. The text we turn to today is the text for the sixth Sunday after Easter in lectionary cycle B. It happens to be May the 9th, 2021. And it's a text from Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48. The concluding verses of a lengthy chapter in the book of Acts where Luke outlines how the gospel of Jesus Christ spread to a Gentile audience. And it really is about tables. And the way this story starts in Acts chapter 10 with two different characters, one named Peter and the other named Cornelius, we hear a story that starts out with what's on the table. But really what this story is about is who is at the table. So let's start first with what's on the table. Early in chapter 10, the apostle Peter yes, the same Peter from the Gospels, is in a city along the Mediterranean coast in Israel or Palestine. And this particular city is called Joppa. And while he's staying in Joppa, he goes up onto the roof of a house. And while he's there during the day, uh, taking uh, ostensibly a nap at noon, this sheet descends from the sky and it's filled with all sorts of unclean foods. Now, what's interesting is this is not necessarily a time of day one would be planning to eat. Uh, typically, in Jewish culture, you would eat a meal in the late morning, maybe around 10 or 10.30, and then you would eat again in the mid to late afternoon, around 3 or 4 o'clock, and then you would finally have an evening meal before retiring for the night. And so in some ways, when Peter goes up to the roof of this house in Joppa at noon, He's probably just eaten not that long ago. And when he sees this sheet come down with all these foods on it, what he sees are foods that are unclean for any Jewish person in the first century to eat. And when he sees this sheet filled with foods he's not allowed to eat, he hears a voice that says, go on, kill and eat. The voice speaking to him is telling him to go take the animal flesh that's on this blanket or this sheet and to take it and to eat it, which he would not normally be allowed to do because it violates kosher law. Most of the Jewish code around um, uh, the peculiarities of diet, of course, are food-based. And so when it came to interacting with Gentiles who could really eat anything they wanted to, for the most part, the reason Gentiles were excluded And why Jewish people in the first century kept their distance from Gentiles is because of the proximity of Gentiles to unclean things. It wasn't so much that the the Gentiles themselves were unclean, but because they would be around unclean food or they would be around various forms of idols or other things like this. uh, Jewish people tend to keep their distance from most Gentiles. It's not because, again, they themselves were unclean but because these Gentiles would often be exposed to things that were unclean. So when Peter sees this sheet come down from the sky, it's filled with foods that he's typically not allowed to eat. And that's really at the crux of the story. 
it's not just about what's on the table. In other words, what's there to eat. It's about who's at the table. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But what's interesting, too, is where this story happens. It happens in a city called Joppa. And if you read the Bible in its entirety, you're going to see the city um, mentioned a couple of different times. It's mentioned once during the time of King David. It's where uh, the ark is ultimately brought from near Joppa up to its waiting point on its way to Jerusalem. But Joppa is probably most well known for a particular prophet that you know named Jonah. Uh, the, The story of Jonah opens in the city of Joppa. And in the story of Jonah, Jonah's called to go preach a message of repentance to those who live in the city of Nineveh, the equivalent then of Gentiles. And Jonah, as we know from the story, of course, refuses to go, and he decides to take a ship from the port, which is at Joppa, and goes out to sea. And you know how the story goes from there. He's swallowed by a great fish. And that same great fish vomits him up on the shore in Joppa. So he left from Joppa. He returned to Joppa. And the prophet Jonah, faced with confronting his own fear and anxiety and in some ways his own exclusivity around this message of repentance, refuses to go to Nineveh. And it's where Joppa It's in Joppa that his perspective is transformed. So when the sheet falls from the sky with all of these foods on it that Peter's not allowed to eat, Peter refuses, but yet God corrects him. And this sheet descends to him in this vision three different times. You might notice a pattern here with Peter. Sometimes it takes three times for particular messages to get through. After the third time the sheet descends, there's a knock at the door. And the knock at the door reveals that there's a Roman soldier there with two other individuals that have come along with him. They're from the household of Cornelius, and they have invited Peter to travel from Joppa to Caesarea. Peter's response after having this vision is to invite the three messengers to come in and to stay the night with him. And he intends to leave with them the next morning. The similarities between the story of Peter and Jonah are rich in that both are ultimately called in the encounter we read, at least for Peter in Acts chapter 10, and for Jonah in the book called Jonah, is a call to take this message of God to a group of people that we would not normally think they would take it to. For Jonah, it's to go to Nineveh. For Peter, it's to go to Caesarea. Peter's vision up to this point, is rather small. Even though Jesus has told the disciples that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, the apostles haven't quite figured out how that's going to happen. And one of the key takeaways for us in this text is this. As we look at Peter's perspective about eating any of these foods on this sheet, is that oftentimes our exclusion of others is usually small, petty, and even at times unimagined. You see, exclusion of others lacks curiosity. The exclusion is small. It really is unimagined. And ultimately, it lacks a sense of curiosity. And it's here where we find that things begin to shift and change. We begin moving away from what's on the table to who's at the table. Now, before this entire story happens in Joppa with Peter, there's another vision that happens before it. 
in Acts chapter 10, and it's with Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion of what's called the Italian cohort. Basically, it's a group of soldiers that are probably from Italian descent, and they live in, and Cornelius lives in Caesarea. We'll talk about that in a moment. But a Roman centurion is a man, a soldier in an army, who commands a hundred other men. And so it's a position of significance. A Roman centurion would be the highest ranking enlisted person in the Roman army, the equivalent of a a master sergeant or even a master chief in the Navy. Uh, This particular role would be one that's of significance amongst enlisted men. And and Cornelius is a a, a centurion. He's a commander of this group of 100 men. And what we don't know whether he's active in that uh, duty or if he's retired, we're not quite sure. But he lives in Caesarea. Caesarea is a city along the Mediterranean coast. And if you're in Joppa, Caesarea is about 30 miles due north up along the coast. And Caesarea was built by Herod the Great. And it was intended to be a palace for the Roman governor. Pilate, when he was the Roman governor, he lived in Caesarea. It was the headquarters of the Roman governor. It was a Gentile city built for Gentiles. One could argue that Herod perhaps even built Caesarea to kind of keep the, the, the Gentile presence somewhat quarantined away from the city of Jerusalem. And so this coastal city of Caesarea became the hub of kind of Roman commerce, being, of course, where the Roman governor would locate their seat of power. These messengers that have come to retrieve Peter and Joppa have been sent by Cornelius from Caesarea in a dream. Cornelius has a dream, and he's told to send people to Joppa to get a man named Peter and to have him brought to him. And so they do so. Those three messengers that arrived at Peter's place he was staying in Joppa uh, stayed the night there, and the next day they left and took about a day and a half journey or so to come back to Caesarea. Peter arrives, and when he arrives, Cornelius bows and worships him. It says that Cornelius is a a God-fearer. And what that means in some ways is that Cornelius is probably a follower of the, the Jewish God, but he is not a proselyte to Judaism. In other words, he hasn't converted to Judaism. He hasn't been circumcised. He hasn't become obedient to all of the different kosher laws and the varieties of codes that Jews were required to obey, even as converts. Cornelius, of course, doesn't understand the inner workings of Judaism very well. So when Peter arrives, he bows down before him, and Peter immediately stops him, as he appropriately should. And what happens for Peter is at that moment in time, he internalizes the vision he has had on that rooftop in Joppa. He begins to understand that it's not about what's on the table. It's about who is at the table. Even in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, Peter says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is a man for his Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit with him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. You see, Peter started to internalize the message that this isn't just about whether or not he can have a ham sandwich. 
This is about whether or not he can engage with a person like Cornelius. And so they engage in a process of swapping their stories. Cornelius tells them about the vision he had in the dream where he was to send messengers to Joppa to get Peter. Peter tells Cornelius about the vision he had of the sheet coming down from heaven filled with all these unclean foods. Peter begins to share this message of the gospel with Cornelius. And before he can even finish the sermon, the Spirit of God falls upon Cornelius and his entire household. It says that when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, they began to speak in foreign tongues or uh, speak in language that was not their own. It, it really is, in many ways, identical to the story we read earlier in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell upon all of the disciples who had gathered in the upper room after Jesus' ascension. They are baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit arrives even before their water baptism. And Peter's entourage that have come with him, not just the three messengers Cornelius has sent, but the Acts 10 tells us that Peter has brought people with him, probably other Jews. They're amazed that the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for Gentile is ethnos. We get our word ethnic from it. And it's this word that denotes people who are not of us. It could be used in a variety of different ways within the ancient world, not just to describe those who are non-Jewish. It really simply means those who are not of us. And so Peter's entourage are amazed that those not of us have received the Holy Spirit. And take note that this story happens at Cornelius's home. It's not in a temple. It's not in a place of worship. It's not in a place of great holy significance. It's in a house. And we're going to see this happen again and again in the book of Acts. These stories about the Holy Spirit falling, people being baptized, converts being reached again and again and again happen in homes. They don't happen in holy places. The Spirit manifests itself in tongues, just like in Acts chapter 2. It doesn't happen in a temple. It happens in a home. And also notice that when Peter tells his uh, entourage that are with him to baptize Cornelius and his household in water— that Peter himself doesn't do it. Who does the baptizing isn't really important. What is significant is that the Holy Spirit has fallen on Cornelius. This story is often described as the Gentiles' Pentecost. Well, for good reason. See, God moves in a surprising fashion here. In the middle of Peter's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls. His sermon is interrupted. Once again, God is moving, and the church is trying to play catch-up. One of the key passages here is this, is that God's grace and power are expansive and inclusive. The gospel is offered to all, yet those who have it and those who don't have it to whom it's offered have to make a choice about it. God decides who is at the table. The question is then, how will those at the table respond to the grace of God? Do we trust God with this kind of authority? Trust God to invite to the table whomever God would invite to the table. Raises an important question for us about how we include, how we exclude the rules that we make and the rules that we're known for. Are we really believing that God has invited everyone to the table 
and that the choice is theirs as to what to do with that invitation once they're at that table. You see, it's not about what's on the table, it's about who's at the table. And it's really about getting the right question here. When it comes to inclusion and exclusion, it's, it's not about why should I let you in? That's a boundary by permission. It's a different kind of question we hear in this text. Why should I not let you in? You see, that's a boundary by inclusion. It's slightly different. It's a nuance. And it's, it's repeated in the book of Acts. We read it in Acts chapter 8, verse 36, when the Ethiopian who has heard the gospel message from Philip is riding down the road and he sees water and he says, what prevents me from being baptized? Same idea. Peter says, what should prevent these people from being baptized? Why should they not be baptized? See, the question is maybe part of a baptismal liturgy in the early church. What would prevent this person from being baptized? But think for a moment about this question for us, for the Ethiopian and for the centurion Cornelius. Why should I let you and why should we not mean very different things? And the radical idea here is that God is working and expanding and broadening, and it seems that the church is always trying to play catch-up. Religious people oftentimes tend to think in exclusion. That's where Peter was when he was on the roof of that house in Joppa. And that exclusion is about to be dismantled in Acts. As we see over these chapters in Acts chapter 9, 10, 11, we see God widening a table. We see God inviting people that we never thought could possibly be invited before. It reminds me of something I've said in sermons before. I'm in sales, not management. I don't make the decisions about who's in, who's out, who belongs, who doesn't belong, what the rules are, what the rules aren't. I'm in sales. My job is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with whoever is there, however they are there, wherever they came from, and wherever I have gone to. And perhaps that's what it means for us to get the right question. You see, what Acts is trying to tell us is that inclusivity is the default setting for Christians. That there has to be some remarkable reason why we wouldn't act in an inclusive fashion. And it's unfortunate because what we're known for today is the exact opposite. So let's change that narrative. Let's change that narrative to think about how God is breaking open this world to the love of God in new ways and that we are there to witness it and to share it and to not worry about who's in and who's out. It's not what's on the table. It's who's at the table. And what God is clearly saying in this story is that everyone can be at the table. May it be so. Thanks be to God. God bless. We'll see you next time.